Taking us back to November 1956 there. Great, great song. One of my favourites of all time. And number one in this country, of course. And it was True Love, Bing Crosby and Grace Kiley from the film High Society. Grace, you... Grace Kiley? Kelly. Grace Kelly. Thank you. Grace Kelly. Later to become Princess Grace, of course. Of course. Yes. So, good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Richard. How are you? I'm a little bit sleepy, but I'm all right. That's all right on a Saturday, isn't it? It's allowed. Yes. Right. The movie hour. Yes. Shall we start with the uh, the local films then? Yes, why not? Um, <coughs> I think as we say about this time, every week it's a bit of a mixed bag, but we'll start with the Annick Playhouse. Wednesday evening they've got Beautiful Lisa, a French comedy. You mean Beautiful Lies, I think. Is that what it's meant to say? <laughs> oh, yes. You're not I, starting all that well. I haven't got me glasses on, have I? Beautiful yeah, Lies. Beautiful Lies, which is the new comedy. It's still a French comedy, though. It is. It's the new French comedy starring Audrey Tattoo. It looks pretty good. It's been compared to Amelie, which is always a bit dangerous. And no, there'll be a further yeah. Amelie comparison when we come on to the Hedgehog. But it does look quite enjoyable in a sort of frothy, cappuccino-y way. Right. And then Thursday evening, Holy Rollers. Which I'm not too keen on. We reviewed this about three or four months ago. It's a, a comedy um, starring Jesse Eisenberg as an acidic Jew who gets involved in smuggling ecstasy. It has the same fundamental problem as a lot of drug-related films, that when, which is that it can't decide how seriously it wants to take the whole characters in crisis thing, and in the end it, it, it ends up being closer to carry on dealing than Requiem for a Dream. Right. Good. Good. So... 7.30 both nights. Tickets are £6.550 for concessions. Box office number 510785. Loads going on at the morning, so it's going to be one-liners again for these. No problem. Uh, first of all, um, today at uh, 2.30 and 7 o'clock, it's Cars 2. Which is disappointing because they made it for themselves rather than the audience. Right. Uh, tomorrow at 7. No, tomorrow at 2.30 and Monday at 7. Monday's, by the way, half-price Monday, of course, is going to be uh, Mr. Popper's Penguins, and we're coming to that a little later on, aren't mm -hmm. we? Yep. Um, tomorrow morning at 10.30, if you can get up that early, Alice in Wonderland. Is this the original Alice in, from the 50s? Uh, it doesn't say. It just says certificate you 76 minutes. Well, in that... Let me just have a quick rustle of my paper, because I've got my detailed guide here. Um, it's the Disney 1951 classic. Well, then, I yeah, I would certainly recommend it because that is one of the best Disney films. Right, worth going to see. Uh, Monday afternoon, 2.30's Horrid Henry the Movie. Which so. we both like. Yep. Uh, Tuesday, uh, 8 o'clock is the first grader. Which I haven't heard of, so I can't comment. Right. Wednesday is Senna. Which is great if it was still one of the best documentaries of this year. Right. Thursday is Babette's Feast. Which is a, a very unusual uh, cult film from the early 80s, and not for the faint-hearted, because it does involve a lot of eating. Right, and also on Thursday, Whiskey Galore. A uh, re-release of a classic Ealing comedy. I was watching Kind Hearts and Coronets again earlier this week and laughed myself stupid. I don't think Whiskey Galore's up there with Kind Hearts or indeed Lady Killers, but it is very funny, even though it's slightly more light-hearted than the other Ealing stuff. Right. And there's a series on, uh, I think it's BBC Two next week, about um, old Ealing comedy and the like films, uh, particularly Pathé News, and um, what are they doing now? And people that were filmed as teenagers or whatever back in uh, the 60s and 70s. Oh, and I see. They're being brought back to the screen to say what it was like as an experience. Mm -hmm. should be quite interesting. Yeah, they managed to round up all the St. Trinian's girls. <laughs> yes, that <laughs> would be very good fun indeed, wouldn't it? Yes. Not. Right, shall we have a look at the uh, the top ten then? Yeah. Uh, no. Number ten, Mr. Popper's Penguins. Which is, it's all right. It's n There's nothing to get angry about. It's just a bit bland, but, you know, there's no point getting angry. Number nine, Spy Kids 
40. That is worth getting angry about. It's a wretched film. Robert Rodriguez is torching his own career. It's further proved that 3D is going down the tubes, that they have to resort to scratch and sniff to bring people into the cinemas. Right. Number eight, I thought this should have come in a bit higher than that. Conan the Barbarian. Yeah, it has officially underperformed going in at number eight. It, I know, having been advertised pretty much everywhere. If you've been on YouTube at any point during the last two weeks, you can't have moved because of Jason Momoa's pecs turning up. I mean, Marcus Nispel, the director, is a hack. The increased gore over the original version is completely unwarranted. I mean, the original in and itself isn't a masterpiece, but compared to this, it probably is. Right. Um, Harry Potter. Um, yes, um, yeah, go and see it if you haven't seen it. That's all I'll say. All right, fine. Right. Number six, Cowboys and Aliens. Which is a classic example of a blockbuster where the whole appeal is in the title, and once you get over the initial thrill of seeing, you know, Han Solo and James Bond together, there isn't much to keep you entertained. Right, Final Destination 5 at number 5. Which, you know, run-of-the-mill, slightly boring collection of 3D money shots. The 3D's unnecessary. It's made interesting only by the presence of Tony Todd, who plays the title role in Candyman, which, we, as we discovered, you're actually a fan of last week. Yes, I wouldn't yes. have you down as a Clive Barker person at all. So, yeah, I mean, we both like that. And yeah. can, if you want a gory horror film that's also quite fun, go and rent Candyman instead. Right. But not the sequels, because they're dreadful. One of your favourite films at number 4, The Smurfs. <sighs> I'll keep this short, it's dreadful, and it's hopelessly derivative of Garfield. Move right. on. My favourite film at number three, this really is my favourite, uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, well worth going to see. The great prequel that uh, was worth telling, brilliant CGI, great filming, well worth it. I'm film of the year for me so far, but I don't get out very often. <laughs> Well, yeah, I, I've got nothing, <laughs> apart from the last thing, I, I've got nothing to object to. Yeah, go and see it. The uh, The rumour is that if this is as big a success as it's going to be, that it's going to be for the first part of a trilogy, so it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. Because they, if they attempt to remake the Teston version so soon after Tim Burton tried it, they might come a cropper. Yeah, uh, I'm just shuffling me bits of paper here, because I think it's coming on at Anik before the end of this month. So, uh, you talk about um, number two at one day, and okay. I'll have a look at yeah, this. Yeah, whilst you're shuffling around. Yeah. Um, it's disappointing. I don't think Anne Hathaway's accent is quite as terrible as other people think. There was a wonderful comment on Radio 5 yesterday when they had various emails about the accent, saying, you know, I'm from a rich part of Yorkshire, and not all of us have to sound like Geoffrey Boycott. The problem is that the story is very contrived and very ordinary once you get past the advice of the meeting on the same day every year for 20 years so it's not hideous it's just surprisingly dull okay and number one the in-betweeners movie which i'm not a fan of it's very televisual boring you no know, standard plot and it is essentially kevin and perry go large but with more swearing and alternative opinions on that with lewis denny five or seven on monday night because he is still raving about it I'm, I'm sure he is but um before we go on to the to yeah. uh, other stuff can i mention something that isn't in the top 10 which you should really see right on thursday night i went with my dad to see the skin i live in which is the new pedro Almodovar film which was film of the week last week or maybe yeah. the week before and um you know went in thinking you know great eyes without a face master of spanish melodrama working with antonio banderas again for the first time in 21 years because they had a bit of a falling out and it's really really good it's very uncomfortable in places there are you no know, surgical scenes in it nothing too graphic because it's only a 15 certificate and if you're not aware of the conventions of melodrama there'll be at least one point where you go oh don't be stupid that wouldn't happen but if you lose yourself in that world it's really really good i mean there are 
a lot of very scary moments in it. Antonio Banderas is really sinister and has great screen presence. The, the cinematography is wonderful. The use of music, particularly at the wedding sequence, is beautiful. And it is, for me, one of the best films of the year. Certainly it's on a par with Black Swan from earlier as, you know, taking the conventions of a melodrama and playing them less hysterically in this case, but still cranking it up with the intention. It's, no, it's essentially, it's a horror film about gender identity, which you don't get many of those. <laughs> Sounds good. Yes. Right. And if you do want to see Rise of the Planet of the Apes, it's going to be in Annick Friday the 30th of September. Date for your diary there. Yeah. Talking about dates for the diary, Barrick Film Society has put its programme out. Yes, they have. And we've got the back page of it here. And it looks pretty well put together. I mean, we were sort of looking through this when you handed me a copy after 10 o'clock. And there's not really a weak link in any of these. I mean, we'll just canter through them. Origins and Sunshine of Gods and Men, Loose Cannons, Animal Kingdom, which was a film of the week of mine many months ago and uh, still very good. The original version of Wild Target, Wasteland, Bicycle Thieves, which is a great, you know, late 40s classic of you know, what's known as Italian neorealism around the same time that Fellini was in his prime. Farewell, A Screaming Man, and Potish, which if you've been to a multiplex cinema at any point, you might have seen um, as the new Orange Ads, where they've redubbed Potish as um, no sort of product placement. So, yeah, I would by all means go along to all of those. Also, I'd like to you know, make a shout-out for the event at the end of this month, which is uh, the Silent, Silent Pianist Speaks Neil Brand's coming on the, the 28th of September. It's half seven. Neil Brand was... Um, the silent pianist who accompanied Paul Merton on his series Silent Clowns on BBC4 where he did a documentary or a series of documentaries about um, Chaplin, Keaton, Lauren Hardy and Harold Lloyd and Brand is a genius and he is one of the best silent pianist accompanists around. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Gerard Depardieu has been putting a, a bit of weight on, hasn't he? Slowly but surely, yes. <laughs> I mean, he is... I, my guess is that that he's, might... He's be... not exactly a heartthrob in that picture, is he? <laughs> well, not that you and I would judge anyway. This, well, this uh... picture that doesn't really work on radio, but yeah. <laughs> yes. Although he has... Yeah, there is an argument that uh, he's been putting a lot of that weight because there's a new Asterix film being made. But whether it's... I don't know whether it's animated or not, so it might all have been in vain. <laughs> right. We are um, going to be having a look at our cult classic, which is Spetters. Yes. Um, before that, though, we have a request, so we better get that out of the way first, haven't we? This is the fresh sound for the district. Live, Live from, from Annick. This is Lionheart Radio. Three times sublime, another of our local acts that I've never actually played before on the programme. You keep forget I'm determined to keep you out of this. You keep forgetting to put my mic up, Richard. Are you trying to tell me something? <laughs> I don't know, because I know absolutely nothing about the cult film, so I don't know why I was doing that, but never mind. Yeah. And that was played specially for uh, for Mickey from, uh, from Almav, who has subsequently texted in with the news that um, he is going to be in concert in three weeks' time, isn't it, uh, with uh, Oil City Connection. Mm, which is his Dr. Philgate tribute band, and the good news, Mick, is I think I'm free that evening, so I will come along to Annick and watch you play at long last. So, if you want to know more about that, no doubt Mick will tell you, but you can go to the Lionheart Radio Facebook page, because it's got all the information on. Splendid. Right. As I say, I know absolutely nothing about the cult classics. <laughs> Over to you, Daniel. Listen and I'll learn. go make the coffee. Uh, <laughs> spetters. Yes, Spetters, or Spetters, as we might pronounce it, because it's a Dutch film. Um, 1980 coming-of-age film, directed by Paul Verhoeven, who I presume you've heard of. Yes, I have. Yes. But don't ask me why I've Okay, heard. well, he's best known for his Hollywood work, so Robocop, Total Recall. Oh, the right, that one. Yes. yes. I was going to say, you'd remember him once I started talking about that sort of thing. And, and this is a cult classic. This is a cult classic. This is and one the of... The guy who brought us Robocop. This could be interesting. Yes. You like Robocop, I take it. Yeah, it's, it's... I wouldn't have said it was a classic, though. 
Well, Total Recall is very good, although apparently yeah. they're remaking it. So yeah, he's he's the guy who gave us those films. He also you know won a record number of Razzies for Showgirls, but the less said about that, the better. Um, this is one of the first films he made. It was because um, he started off in Holland before he came over to Hollywood. Made things like well, a very a very unusual range of films because he made Kitty Tipple, which is a sort of 18th century period drama about a courtesan who becomes a, an aristocrat. Soldier of Orange, which is still one of the best films ever made about World War Two and which launched the career of Rutger Hauer, and uh, The Fourth Man, which is like a trial run for Basic Instinct, but with more supernatural elements, and uh, the star of, the co-star of Spetters went on to star in The Fourth Man, so that's you know, an interesting link. It was released to commercial success in Hollywood, but in um, Holland, I should say, but it received very little attention elsewhere. It was accused of being anti-gay, anti-lesbian, anti-Christian, pretty much anti-everything else, and as is so often the case with Verhoeven, it's you know, a case of him having the last laugh, because almost none of that is the case. But but the reaction of, you know, critics led eventually to Verhoeven moving to Hollywood after completing his sort of sprawling fantasy film Flesh and Blood with Jennifer Jason Leigh, who, if you were listening to the podcast where Tom Davidson was filling in for you, we talked about because she turns up in The Hitcher. So the story is, it's um, set in and around Rotterdam in sort of late 70s, early 1980, and it follows three men who want to become motocross racing champions. Uh, a junior champion called Rien, this is where it gets into the accents, and I apologise if there are any Dutch listeners out there. Uh, a young champion called Rien, who's played by Hans Tongeren, his cocky mechanic Eve, played by Toon Achterberg, and the clumsy Hans, played by Martin Spanner. You're doing very well. I'm doing my best, I've done my best. Well, some uh, more difficult ones to come in the cast list yet. Yes, I'm uh, just breaking myself in there. So the title of the film comes from the archaic Dutch slang for hunks. No, no, uh, it's a spetter, he's a hunk. Or alternatively, it means splatters, because there is a, a which is used to describe the, the noise you get when you lower chips into boiling oil, and there is a sequence where, um, the owner of a burger van attacks a biker by, you know, holding him hostage and pouring chip fat down the front of his trousers. Which is, you know, quite unpleasant, but quite... quite a good word for it, spetter, isn't it? Yes. Um, it uh, what's the word that it sounds like what it is? Um, help me here. I'll have to come back to you. I yes, mean, there is a, a term for it, isn't it? A word that sounds like it is. Um, and you could imagine Spetter being a... Yes, you could imagine... Oh, it's, um, it's onomatopoeic. That's the word. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, in the early sections of the film of Spetters, we, um, we see these three men partying at various clubs, you know, scenes that look quite like Saturday Night Fever, but with slightly more edge, uh, sleeping with various attractive women and racing to become like their hero, the national champion Gerard Wittkamp, who is played by a silvery-haired Rutger Hauer. And soon, a new love interest arrives in the form of a girl called Fincher, who is played by Rini Sudenjik, who uh, runs a fast food van with her gay brother Yarp, played by Peter Tuneman, and she ends up seducing all three of the young men and their lives change dramatically as a result of having relationships with her. I'm not going to repeat many of the acts. <laughs> <laughs> I need another drink just getting through that. So, when I um, reviewed Total Recall for Rotten Tomatoes ages and ages ago, because I write reviews for their website, um, I was trying to think of an analogy for describing a Paul Verhoeven film, and the one that I came up with was, it's like peeling an onion while wearing boxing gloves. Because there are, in all of his films, whether it's his Hollywood work or his earlier Dutch language stuff, there are a lot of very pungent layers to get through, you know, the strong language, flesh-ripping violence, nudity, lots of sex scenes, and there is a general sleazy sense. And the boxing gloves thing from the fact that all of that stuff is so full-on and so unapologetic that he makes it hard for you to get down to the centre. But if you actually work hard and stay with it, there is a kernel of substance in all of his films, and most of his best films, with the exception of Showgirls, which is where he did drop the ball, they are they do have themes about identity, and I think that a lot of 
the, the critics who slated his films, particularly his early work, slated it either because they they didn't have the patience to get through the layers or because they got through and didn't understand what he was trying to say. I mean, in the case of Total Recall, you've got an action film which has got, you know, people having bolts put through their neck and Arnold Schwarzenegger getting, you know, brainwashed and now all sorts of that sort of thing and Sharon Stone in a skin-tight leotard. But if you get beyond that, it's actually about, well, is all of our, is all our life a dream? Is it, is all of this an implant? Do we identify ourselves by our memory? So there is substance in amongst all this. Spetter's kind of set the tone for his later work and career, partly because of its reaction by the press. Like I say, it was lambasted by the critics but loved by the audiences and Verhoeven got the last laugh because years and years later it has been, become completely rehabilitated and people yeah. now think, yes, it's a cult classic. On the other hand, um, it is... It does set the tone in terms of the level of sex and violence that I described. I mean, it's not, that's not to say that his later films didn't have it in, but if you look at something like Kitty Tipple, which is, you know, an 18th century period drama, although there are a number of very raucous sex scenes in that, the, the, the violent aspects are slightly limited by the fact that it's the 18th century when you didn't have sort of Hollywood pyrotechnics and so forth, and you couldn't, you, know, you couldn't get away with putting that sort of thing on screen. So, to use a sort of a genre comparison, Spetters is what you would get if you put The Wild One, Rebel Without a Cause, and Saturday Night Fever in a blender, and then drank it in the middle of a drunken rave. Because it's, you know, it's very heady stuff. I mean, the, the latter comparison with Saturday Night Fever is very evident in the cocky attitude of the male characters. Because you remember that famous opening shot of Saturday Night Fever of um, John Travolta swaggering down the road. and it Yes, kind of certainly do, yes. Yes, to yeah. the Bee Gees, I believe. And there is a direct reference to that in a sequence where um, the mechanic Eve goes into the middle of the disco floor and starts showing off doing the Travolta moves, only for a John Travolta lookalike to jump in and show him how it's done, and he kind of walks off with his tail between his legs. <laughs> And the costumes sort of borrow from all elements of those films because Eve has a very clear penchant for leather, which of course nods towards Marlon Brando in The Wild One. And Rutger Hauer's kind of very sort of perfect silvery hair does nod to John Travolta because he's very careful that none of it falls out of place. There's a wonderful joke um, about um, a guy goes into a barber's and says, you know, I want you to cut my hair so that I look like John Travolta. And the barber says, well, all right. And now he kind of starts snipping stuff away and more and more hair's coming off and the guy's getting worried until eventually the barber has cut off all of his hair. He said, I thought you... I, I wanted to look like John Travolta. He doesn't look like this. And the barber goes, yes, he does. I saw him in The King and I 14 times. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So, it's that sort of thing. So, like many coming-of-age films, Spetters is primarily concerned with our male protagonists trying to score with women and coming away with a little bit more than bruised egos. I mean, this came in the middle of the gross-out wave of the late 70s, so Animal House, Porky's, yeah. the first Lemon Popsicle film, which, isn't, which actually isn't all that bad. I mean, the sequels are terrible, but... So, it's only natural to anticipate that a lot of the stuff going on would leave a sort of sour, guilty taste in the mouth. But those sorts of sequences where, you know, they are adolescent, they are unashamedly about sort of, you know, let's get off with this attractive woman. They are also an interesting excuse, if you like, for Verhoeven to, to show his skill as a director. There's one of the things that he's always done in his more comedic works, which is that he, he sets up a given situation. He lets things get a little bit seedy, and then he kind of pulls the rug from going to be really uncomfortable and really gross, and then you're genuinely surprised by how funny it is, and that's what makes Spetters yeah. a lot more distinctive than a lot of the, yeah. uh, the sub-Animal House fare, including Porky's, I have to say. On top of that, you have the racing sequences, because in the early section of the film where you actually have motocross racing for a lot of it, it's, it's, it feels very, very real. I mean... 
part of this comes from the fact that the budget was very, very low, so you know that there were, in some cases, they couldn't even afford stunt doubles. So you yeah. have these incredible sequences where Verhoeven's camera is doing long takes and getting in, in very close, so you can see all the jumps, and all the crashes feel like people are genuinely getting hurt. And it's a case of Verhoeven clearly identifying with the enthusiasm of these young men and just this urge to, to race and be the best that they can, both in terms of their virility and in terms of their, their prowess on the, on the racetrack. And, yeah. you know, like I say, the, the racing sequences do feel like they've been done in one go and then filmed over and over again rather than just, we'll film a bit now and then cut yeah. and then film a bit more and then cut in the way that it would if they were being done in Hollywood. It takes about half an hour for the film to fully set up the three characters. So it's you, you get that sort of thing again in coming-of-age films where you think, well, the plot's a bit thin so far, what's going to happen? And then it all kicks into gear when Fincher arrives. She's played with, I'll say her name one more time, Rene Sudenjik who is was something of a sex symbol at Hollywood in, the, in uh, Holland at the time. I keep saying Hollywood, I'm sorry, I'm, it's too early in the morning. And she would later star, like I said at the start, in The Fourth Man, which was, like I say, Paul Verhoeven's supernatural horror thriller, which was the inspiration for Basic Instinct. The main difference between the films being that Sharon Stone, although she's implied to be the devil, doesn't actually have supernatural powers, whereas it's implied that um, the, the character in The Fourth yeah. Man is actually a witch. Right. Um, and it's a very good film, as a matter of fact. Um, she's introduced as a dangerous outsider whom the community doesn't accept. I mean, the first time we see her, she pulls up on the side of a canal in her sort of, you know, her burger van, if you like, with her brother. And the policeman says, you can't park here, you've got to move on. And she says, would you like to come in for a cup of coffee? And then it cuts <laughs> to him leaving. So, you know, we don't need to explain what's happened to make her yeah. stay. And there is... There are even things, I mean, Eve's father, who is, uh, who is described in the IMDb synopsis as a Bible-thumping Calvinist, goes so far as to describe her as a whore of Babylon and refuses his, to let his son see her. But having set it up like that, when you think, okay, it, it could drift very easily into just misogyny, a lot of Verhoeven's films, which, you know, have so-called so evil women in them, they're not quite as simplistic as they might seem. And like all Verhoeven's best work, Spetters calls the characters' identities into question and leaves us confused about who exactly we're rooting for. Because uh, you remember in Basic Instinct, when um, you kind of go through the first half of the film thinking Sharon Stone is just the devil, you know, she's yes, kind of yeah. toying with the detectives and the, the famous... Yeah interrogation scene with the uncrossing of legs and then gradually once um after her lesbian lover is killed you start to believe that it's actually possible that she's just this fractured poor vulnerable character who happens to be caught up in all of this yeah. and the film tricks you into thinking that she might actually not have done it when from the final shot it's quite clear that she did and in this case you have the device of you no, know, Finch is seducing the three men as a means of proving that there is more to becoming a man than just losing one's virginity and scoring with the best woman in town. I mean, Finch's motivations are up for debate because she, as with Sharon Stone's character, she does start off as like a serial man-eater. There's a sequence of her um, seeing a woman coming out of a store with a brand new fur coat and she looks on her very jealously. And then she, after she's started into a relationship with Reen, who's the one who wants to become, you no, know, is is likely to become a champion, she goes into the same store and buys the exact same fur coat and twirls around in front of the mirrors for about five minutes. And it's a, it's a bit like um, that moment in Single White Female where Jennifer Jason Lee comes out of the hairdressers with the exact same haircut as Bridget Fonda and you think, he's doomed. <laughs> <laughs> so, although she starts off as that sort of femme fatale man-eater character, in the end, she gradually emerges as being as confused as everyone else and there are lines where she says, you know, why does this always happen to me? Everything I touch is turns to dust and I can't settle. And she's very unsure of herself. 
there is some kind of moral point in the fate of the three men. It isn't just a case of, you know, the first two weren't up to scratch, so I'll have the third one. And, um... So, I mean, if you, to go through them, Reen, who's, like I said, the first one she thought, he's seduced by the fact that Fincher says, well, I can get you sponsorship, I can you know, get you closer to your idol. But he ends up losing the only woman that he really loved, because prior to dating Fincher, he was going out with a woman who works at the supermarket, who's yeah. you know, plain and is actually a Christian. So he kind of abandons the, the one he really wanted for the one that would give him what he needs. And when he finally gets the chance to express his love for the woman he really wants, he can't, either physically yeah. or in terms of his attitude, because he has an accident which takes away all of his self-esteem and he loses the ability to walk as well. Eve, who's the leather-clad one, he desperately wants to seduce Fincher, saying, well, I'm, I'm the one she really wants, you know, yeah. I'm the leather-clad one, I can do, no, I'm the mechanic who built the bikes that's going to win your race, so no, she wants to go as good with his hands. But the more time he spends with her, the more he becomes convinced that he's actually deceiving himself, and he ends up coming out of the closet and hooking up with her brother, right. which is you know, an interesting way of finding yourself. And then Hans, who's the, you know, the one who's actually as will emerge in a scene, the best endowed of a group, he's rather sort of shy and awkward and he doesn't have the guts to actually say, let's sleep together. But he ends up with her because of the fact that he ends up making something of himself instead of just trying to impress her. And at the end yeah. of the film, they decide to open a roller disco together to, um, to renovate a pub that's been smashed in. Yeah. So it's... So, uh, if Verhoeven's making any kind of moral point, and I think you not know, up to a certain point he is, it's the idea of, you know... A man does not demonstrate his worth simply by how good he is in bed, and it's... You could almost liken it in a way to Far From the Madding Crowd, because you remember in Far From the Madding Crowd, the Thomas Hardy novel, yeah. where you have the three men competing for um, Bathsheba's um, affections, played by Judy Christie, of course, in the yeah. film version. And, you no, know, the first two, you know, one gets killed, the other one goes mad, and then she ends up with Gabriel, who's the plain and humble one, but just happens to be there when she needs yeah. him, and in the end, yeah. she, he discovers... She discovers that he, so there is a connection with that, I suppose. As with a lot of Verhoeven stuff, there is a lot of nudity in the film. It's an 18 certificate, so, you know, we can expect that certain amount. Sometimes the nudity is quite funny. There is an early sequence of the three men in a garage where they're fixing a bike, measuring their respective manhoods with a spanner. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, it's again, that's yeah. classic coming-of-age sort of thing. And, it, and you know, unlike an American film where they'd show that with their backs to the audience, in this you see absolutely everything. <laughs> and actually, I had a rather embarrassing experience because the first time I saw Spedders was on, um, I watched it on my laptop when I was coming back on a train journey. Oh, fun! Yes, yes. but the, what makes it awful, I, I was sitting on one of those sort of table seats in an East yeah. Coast train, and opposite me on the table on the other side was uh, um, a, a, um, a man with two, with two young boys, so I was thinking, oh, I better turn my laptop slightly so they don't see. Stupid of me to realise that it was being reflected back in the glass so they could see absolutely everything. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he said anything. So you have that, so some moments of the nudity are funny. There are other moments, however, which are deeply uncomfortable. There is a sequence of Eve being chased through um, a subway after he's stolen money from a gigolo and he ends up being, well, not to put too fond a point on it, sexually assaulted. Mm. And it's not played for laughs. I mean, that would make yeah. it just totally rubbish, but that's that's one of the moments when you could lose patience with the film as it goes into that sort of softcore tinto brass territory which i find no it's occasionally interesting but usually it's insufferable there is also in the manner of paul verhoeven a lot of violence although not as much as in something like total recall in which you do get arnold schwarzenegger beating the living daylights out of people every 15 minutes and there is one particularly wince inducing moment where reen suffers an accident that like i said will leave him crippled and it's it's, it starts off with a classic Verhoeven joke, which is that he's going out on his new bike to uh, sort of, you know, beef himself up and get ready for the next race. And he's driving behind um, 
uh, a car with a family who are eating oranges, and the husband throws the bag of orange peel out of the car. It hits Rin in the face, so you think, ah But then he goes off down the bank, and there's a close-up of him hitting his pelvis on a metal bollard and he Ooh. yeah it is wince inducing yes I've heard. Uh, yeah so but uh, it's you know verhoven sort of turning the approach of the earlier gags on it's like okay it's going to be uncomfortable and then you'll laugh and then it's you're going to laugh but then it'll be uncomfortable and there is a very poignant scene of reen trundling back towards the motorway where it happened in his electric wheelchair and i won't reveal what happens but it is you know very sad so to sum up, it's a visceral and often hilarious comedy drama which offers plenty in the way of thrills and spills. Certainly, it's a nice little antidote to, or a companion piece to the Hollywood you know, coming of age films at the yeah. same time, which, like I say, once you get by, once you get to Porky's 2 in sort of early, I think it was 81. Becoming like very that. generic, weren't they? Yes, yeah, very generic and increasingly concerned with just grossing us out over yeah. everything else. I think, like a lot of coming of age films, the plot is a little too thin. And it does resort to too many gross-out moments to keep us interested. But in the moments when it works, it does find Verhoeven firing on all cylinders, doing what he does best, which is sort of substance in the midst of violent sleaze. It's not up there with his early Hollywood work, and certainly it's not up there with The Fourth Man, which remains, along with Soldier of Orange, his best Dutch language work. But it's good, guilty pleasure fun, so long as you don't watch it on a train. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> that image is going to stay with me for a while. Let's take a little break. Lionheart Radio. Daniel and Richard with the movie hour. We're not here next Saturday. Yeah, disappointingly. Yes, I'm off on my holidays. I'm not disappointed. Another holiday, Richard. Yes. yes. How do you mean another one? Anyway, no, you deserve it. I'll be back. We'll be back in two weeks' time, and our cult classic is going to be the Magic Christian utterly bizarre late 60s comedy from the co-writer of Dr. Strangelove. All oh, right. And while we're on the uh, subject of film critics and things, um, good luck to Tom Davidson, who is having a little break from Lionheart Radio at the moment, because he's off to university to do a degree in film studies. Fantastic. I can't wait to get bring the next time we bring the two of you together. We should... <laughs> will he be home for the Christmas special? He will be, yes. Well, let's have, let's have a sort of a four-way split and bring Paul back as well. <laughs> yes, that should be... Uh, that should be good. If you can get a word in edgeways. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we might have to do two hours for that one, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> right, the new releases, and uh, the first one, it looks to be Welcome Back Conspiracy Theory, Apollo 18. Oh uh, yeah, we can we can canter through this very quickly. Um, it's a found footage horror film which has had a troubled production history. It's sort of been in the pipeline for about four or five years. It's ended up being directed by a, a first-time director called Trevor Kaywood. The premise is that a secret mission to the moon was made after the abandonment of the Apollo program after Apollo 17 in 1972, and uh, that this is supposedly the actual footage, in inverted commas, that NASA shot, which explains what happened to the astronauts and why we haven't been back to the moon. You know, it's, you can see why this was made, because there has been talk um, you know, recently with you know, sending more probes to Mars and whether we should go to Mars or go back to the moon. Neil Armstrong, in particular, was saying it would be much better for us to go back to the moon because we understand more about it and we can you know, think about living on that first before we go out to Mars. And I was a little bit intrigued by this because no, no, I was just wondering which way the reaction was going to go. I haven't seen it on buses pretty much all day this week. Every day this week, I should say. And I kept waiting for more reviews on Rotten Tomatoes turn up, but it got to Thursday night and I realised, oh, it's not being press screened, which is usually... Um, <coughs> There's your paperwork. Lovely. <laughs> yes. Sorry, you hope you didn't hear that too loudly. Yes. <laughs> talk, talk away. Yes, yeah, so like I say, it, I, I wanted to like it, and the fact that it wasn't being press-screened was is a sign of disappointment because if it, normally if a film isn't press screened it means that they don't have much confidence in it. There are exceptions to that because a lot of Bollywood films aren't screened, but no. So, 
I watched the trailer eventually thinking on Friday night, okay, I can't wait any longer, and I can see why they didn't show it. I mean, the found footage motif, it's... It is becoming a little wearisome, um, with, you know, Paranormal Activity 1 and 2, the latter of which was incredibly boring. I mean, the monsters in it are... You don't see much of the monsters in the trailer, but by all accounts, they are very silly because they effectively amount to sort of walking rocks. You know, how scary is that? The acting is wooden... It is effectively trying to be Blair Witch Goes to the Moon, but it ends up just being, you know, another found footage film, and it's not up there with Blair Witch or Wreck or indeed the last broadcast. Yeah. But it's amazing how more, more and more outrageous these conspiracy theory things go. I mean, the original one on the Apollo, of course, is they never went to the moon in the first place. Capricorn all, One, yes. It was all done on a, uh, on a film set. Uh, and uh, this one, that, you know, the one that, uh, that, didn't, uh, that didn't happen, that found something obviously horrendous, which why, yeah, we will never, it's a nice little, why we'll never go to another planet again. Yeah, it's and, a nice little setup, yes. but they just don't do anything interesting with it. Yes. Do you think we should talk about Capricorn One on this slot? Could you, uh, would you call that a cult film? Yeah, I think it probably was, yes. I'll track it down then. Yes, A yes. bit of Elliot Gould. Yeah, if I was, um, yeah, we got the same over Princess Diana, how many conspiracy theories on that, and 9-11, which of course is very, uh, apposite coming up, uh, the 10th anniversary, and all the conspiracy theories around that, you just get bored by it. Well, I don't necessarily get bored, but a lot of them are absurd. Yes. Right, Kill List. Yes, this is the film of the week, I should say. Um, it's the new film by Ben Wheatley, who previously directed a film called Down Terrace, which is a very good thriller. Recently described by Kim Newman, who is a very respected uh, horror uh, critic, writes for Empire and Fangoria, um, as one of Britain's up-and-coming talents. So, no, recommendation. The story follows an ex-soldier who's been out of work for eight months with a bad back, and he is being pestered by his wife to get back into work. He holds a dinner party for an, a friend of his, and his wife during which things get very heated there's a sequence in the trailer of him pulling the tablecloth off the table and destroying the cutlery and um, the friend offers to bring him to, to give him some money by bringing him in on his work because he says oh, i'm a traveling salesman but it turns out he's actually a contract killer and so they go off um doing a number of jobs together as the ex-soldiers trying to provide for his family and keep his head above water as he gradually gets into murkier territory um, the trailer for this is very, very good. I mean, it begins as a sort of intimate family drama with a dinner party, then gradually it drifts into, into horror territory, and until eventually it reminded me of The Wicker Man. And there have been comparisons also with um, a recent um, sort of Hammer Bee movie called Wake Wood, which we'll discuss maybe in a few weeks' time, because that took The Wicker Man, you know, the, the kind of clash between Christianity, if you like, and paganism, and sort of reapplied it with a yeah. reincarnation story. And... It's a sign of a very promising filmmaker to be able to take generic or familiar genre components and retune them, and he does manage it. It's a very intense little thriller, which is well worth seeing. The Tyneside are going to be showing it um, as of this weekend. And while not all of it is groundbreaking, and no, if you, if you don't like uncomfortable films, it's not your sort of thing. But if you like being really freaked out by a film, go and see that, or go and see that and The Skin I Live In on a double bill, because that would be very uncomfortable. <laughs> right, so worth going to see then. Absolutely. Right, the next one I suspect isn't, and I was previewing this on the show last night and I'd conjured up all sorts of the wrong images. Here we go, 3D, Sex and Zen, colon, Extreme Ecstasy. Yes, let's let's belt through this quickly because there isn't much to say. Directed by Christopher Sun and billed as the first pornographic film in 3D, although if you know anything about 3D cinema, that's technically not true because there have been 3D softcore films before, not that I've seen any of them. Um, the story has not much point, but it's set in the Ming Dynasty. A young man goes off on a voyage of discovery which leads in the way of so many pornographic films to copious sexual acts and very bad dialogue in between. Um, I'd just like to share with you a review by um, Natasha Hodson, who writes for Best for Film, because I think this sums it up. 
3D Sex and Zen has been advertised as a cheerful bums and boobs romp through Eastern Erotica with its tongue firmly in cheek, as well as everywhere else you can think of, sailor. <laughs> Imagine my surprise then at being surprised with being presented with two hours of utterly incomprehensible nonsense interspersed with scenes of hilarious, question mark, rape, boring, offensive and utterly baffling. There isn't much to say beyond the fact that it proves the, uh, the argument that 3D is inherently sleazy and trashy. It's very dull. The rape scenes which have been cut by the BBFC are totally pathetic and out of place and it does the thing that Eyes Wide Shut did which is to, to do a sort of let's have lots of sexual acts on screen but then make a moral point about monogamy but at least when Eyes Wide Shut did that Kubrick actually managed to make orgies a turn off because he was making yeah. a very prominent point about jealousy and about trust and so forth whereas this wants to have its cake both ways and it ends up as total nonsense right yeah well but <laughs> it wasn't one of those that inspired you just reading it, did it? No. Anyway, Fright Night, that sounds rather better one. Yeah, um, remake of the 1980s horror comedy, and would you seen the original first time around? I probably did, Do you yes. remember the, the poster, which was sort of like a, a, the, like the house in Poltergeist, but with that strange sort of smiling creature rising out of a cloud of mist over the top? Yes, yeah, yes, I think I do, yeah. And, um, so... The original was helmed by Tom Holland, who later went on to make the first Child's Play film, you know, the one where um, Brad Dourif, you know, is uh, a, a murderer who puts his spirit into a, a doll and then uh, produces a series of sequels, of which Bride of Chucky is the best of the sequels because yeah. it's got Jennifer Tillion. Uh, this one's directed by Craig Gillespie, whose previous film was Lars and the Real Girl, which it's interesting that we've done Sex and Zen recently because that's a film about a loner who, who buys um, an anatomically correct rubber doll and <laughs> is convinced that, he, that she's real and sort of yeah. brings her into the community. You know, it's independent, quirky, slightly offbeat, not very good. So it's set in a boring old American neighbourhood in which our lead character, played this time around by Anton Yelkin, is the most popular kid in school. He becomes convinced that vampires have moved in next door, one of whom is played by Colin Farrell. And he goes to see David Tennant's character, who presents a TV show on horror monsters where, you know, he fights off zombies with special effects, to discuss with him how he should go about defeating vampires. And if you, there's been clips on YouTube of David Tennant seemingly impersonating Russell Brand in being sort of, well, this is what you should do, and I think maybe this, or maybe this, or that. So, yes, if you're not a fan of Russell Brand, you won't sit through it, but I do like David Tennant. As with Conan the Barbarian, the original wasn't all that good. I mean, it was sort of charming in a creaky sort of way, but it was rather sub-poltergeist yeah. and sub-the haunting and so forth. And now, so there is the potential with a remake to to sort of correct that and do something interesting with it. And some of the things about it are good. I mean, I like David Tennant, like I say, and Colin Farrell's doing that sort of intense but ridiculous performance that he does in something like In Bruges, or you know, possibly Alexander, but again, that's he takes himself a bit too seriously in Alexander. And also, there is genre credibility, because the screenplay comes from one of the writers of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. So it's, no, it's very much in that tradition. The problem with Fright Night is, as with so many horror comedies, it's neither scary nor funny enough to fully cut the mustard in the way that American Werewolf does. And, you know, check the bad podcast for what we think about American Werewolf. Um, there are some moments of laughs, but the jokes aren't brilliant, and the scares are quite weak, and they're not helped by the 3D. So my advice is, it's perfectly fine, but if you want a film about sort of vampires moving in next door and how you deal with it, um, I would give two recommendations. Either Near Dark, the Catherine Bigelow film, Catherine Bigelow who later directed The Hurt Locker, which won Best Picture two years ago, in which it's about a vampire and a human falling in love in the real world, and though it's a biker gang of vampires, so there's quite no good sort of thing in that. Or, alternatively, um, go and, uh, you probably won't get this on DVD, but go and look for it online, The Reflecting Skin, Philip Ridley's first film, which is um, a southern gothic tale with vampires in Idaho. Or, of course, let the right one in, which is just an extraordinary piece of work. Great. Good.
One that's uh, going down very well with the critics, not so well with the audience, is Attenberg. Yes, um, independent Greek <gasps> film directed by Athena Rachel Sangari, whose title comes from the lead character's mispronunciation of David Attenborough, but it has nothing to do with Battenberg cake, unfortunately. Um, so the story follows a young girl who is caring for her father who is dying of cancer. She has very few friends and is physically frightened of men, so hints of repulsion, the Roman Polanski film. Yeah. Um, she becomes fascinated by a particular block of flats and spends a lot of the time just randomly dancing with her best friend. Um, it's been compared to another recent Greek film called Dogtooth, which I haven't seen, and both films have been sort of likened as, no, billed as allegories of the modern Greek crisis because of, you no know, the, the credit ratings being downgraded yeah. and the, the public cuts and so forth. Looking at the trailer, however, in this case, I very much doubt it because it, it takes... Do you remember us talking about Beginners a few weeks ago? The, yeah, The Ewan yeah. McGregor film with Christopher Plummer. And the, the idea that, that was sort of, it was quirky and independently spirited, but it did have pro proper characters and a story of some sort in the middle of it. Well, imagine Beginners with all the story taken out and just the quirky stuff. And you can very quickly get annoyed. I mean, it's, in the end, I, I was watching the trailer and I had to stop it halfway through. Just got, I got annoyed of all the scenes of dancing and all the sequence of people getting fascinated by taps. I'm just thinking... <laughs> Tell a story. I don't care how interesting the characters are. If it's not going anywhere, I don't care. So, it's one to avoid. Right. Okay. And, uh, finally, The Hedgehog. Yes, uh, it's an odd little French drama directed by uh, Mona Ashash, hope I'm pronouncing that right, based on the novel The Elegance of the Hedgehog. Uh, prickly subject matter. Sorry, I had to make that gag. Um, so, oh yes, sorry, I won't do that again. Um, so the story follows a young girl who is approaching the age of 12, and she uses her camcorder to record what she perceives as the hypocrisy of the adults around her, and she is determined that on her 12th birthday she's going to end it all. Um, eventually, however, she befriends the elderly janitor who lives on the floor, above her in the in the block of flats and uh, the janitor is asked to dinner by a new asian resident and they form a bond which sort of makes her reconsider about uh, about um, what adults are and how they work um i watched this trailer and again i was really charmed by it i mean the touchstones are quite clear and there are hints of things like harold and maud because it's yeah. you know, the the young person developing a relationship with an older woman older man in this case although unlike harold and maud it's not a romantic relationship in the in the official sense and of course the the young character is obsessed by death so that fits in there are also little hints of amelie which you know we, we talked about at the start because of beautiful lives it's not as frothy and charming as amelie but there is a sort of a sense of a young free spirit almost playing matchmaker and just wanting to do good in the world as the film goes on there are also little touches of things like i suppose the em forster end of merchant ivory things like howard's end and the remains of the day where it's about sort of the point is you just connect for the sake of it and all emotions very internalized yeah. and so forth i mean i'm not the biggest merchant ivory fan but howard's end is, is quite good actually so it's well acted it's good performances occasionally a little bit twee but i did find myself won over by it in the end i don't know how widely it's going to be released so you might have to travel but it should be good so to sum up the film of the week is kill list, kill list. with the hedgehog as a second i suppose but like i say you'll probably have to travel for that one right and other films that are in the cinema at the moment? Uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, on uh, the basis of your recommendation. And yes. other than that, just you know, scrolling back up, Harry Potter, if you haven't already. Right, okay. And we should just give a little plug. Friday the 23rd to Sunday the 25th of September is going to be the Berwick Film and Media Arts Festival. And hopefully when we come back in a couple of weeks' time, we'll do a, a little preview of that. Yep, sounds good to me. So it uh, should be something to look forward to for all of us film buffs because i think i'm slowly becoming one yes even if i don't get out before much. you go to the music can i just yes. make one other announcement um 
I uh, got a copy this week. Uh, my dad gave me a copy of the Golden Turkey Awards. I don't know if you're familiar with those. No. Um, a book released in the early 80s by Michael Medved honouring the worst films ever made. Uh, it's quite out of date now, but it is really, really funny. So we might do a sort of regular slot when we come yes. back of Turkey of the Week or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sounds as if there's a few of them being released at the moment. <laughs> yes. If we can get a ruin in Edgeways, we might have a, no, a little slot about Plan 9 from Outer Space or something. Yes. Right. Um, do hope you've enjoyed the show today. Um, I'll be back in two weeks' time. Sport between 8 and 10, movie hour between 10 and 11. Uh, don't forget tomorrow, Adam Wood will be here with the breakfast show between 7 and 9. Mike Whittingham's classic tracks between 9 and 11. Taking us out to the news, some more from Three Times Sublime. Lion Heart Radio, the voice of Northumberland.